Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, August 24th, 2022, we discuss whether diversity statement requirements at universities are constitutional. And interview Professor Brian Socek, who wrote a recent article in the UC Davis Law Review on the topic. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinions are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have excellent speakers and Professor Brian Socek, Professor of Law and Chancellor Fellow at UC Davis School of Law, and Professor Eugene Volokh, Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law. After our speakers give their remarks, we'll turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll handle questions as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Brian, the floor is yours. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I assume that people that come to an event like this have some sense of what diversity statements are. Uh, it's a little misleading. I'll call them diversity statements probably throughout this, uh, but there's something slightly misleading about that. They're almost invariably referred to as something like uh, statements on contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sometimes those words are flipped around in a different order. Uh, statements of inclusive excellence, one of our campuses here at uh, University of California calls them. Uh, but the common denominator is there a request either for faculty applicants or for current faculty who are going up for tenure or other kinds of advancement uh, to provide the school, the reviewing committee, a statement of how they've contributed to uh, diversity, equity and inclusion in their teaching, research and service. So here at the University of California, where Eugene and I both teach, uh, we've used DEI statements in recent years in two importantly different ways. And I just want to clarify that because I think these two ways have been conflated often in the criticism that UC has uh, pretty widely received. One is the general way. So at Eugene's campus since 2018, 2019, diversity statements have been required for all faculty applicants, all advancement applications. Uh, that's pretty much true throughout the entire UC system at this point. Uh, I'm the chair of our appointments committee here at Davis, the law school this year, and anybody for us to consider has to complete a DEI statement on their online application. Uh, so that's the general way. Then since uh, around 2018, there's been some funding from the legislature that's been used to do targeted searches at, at a variety of campuses. In 2018, uh, Berkeley had five of these searches. We here at Davis had eight of them. Riverside had six. And there it was a much more targeted search looking for people uh, specifically whose uh, teaching research and service had a, a, a particular relevance to DEI concerns. As the ad said, we were looking for people who uh, whose teaching research and service would promote the success of underrepresented African-American, Latino, Hispanic, or Native American students and contribute to the needs of a diverse state. So that was at once a much more targeted notion, definition of diversity than we generally use, uh, and also was 
uh, a much more targeted search for what we're looking for rather than these contributions as just one of many ways in which we'd evaluate some, somebody. These were actually within these searches, something that was evaluated first. The DEI statements were considered in these searches before other elements of the application. And that's unusual. Uh, so partly because of these specific searches, these targeted searches, and partly because of the growing use overall, University of California became increasingly a target of uh, criticism. And I think we're an especially attractive target for this uh, criticism. For one thing, uh, we're public university. We're a public university, so we're fully subject to the requirements of the First Amendment. Of course, things that I'll say later uh, might apply to private universities as well, insofar as they've committed themselves to First Amendment values. Uh, we have, I think, a particularly robust history of uh, academic freedom uh, protections. I think our academic freedom policies are uh, especially, especially robust. Uh, and in part, that's because of our sordid history of not protecting academic freedom in the further past, uh, our history of imposing loyalty oaths during the Cold War era, uh, where you see fired, I think around half of the professors that were fired nationwide for refusing to uh, comply with the loyalty oath requirement. So for all these reasons, uh, UC is a particularly attractive target for critics. And those three reasons that I just gave really track the three main types of criticisms that we hear. One, that diversity statements uh, cause allow universities to engage in viewpoint discrimination against faculty applicants and faculty seeking advancement. Two, that imposed mandatory uh, diversity statement requirements violate the academic freedom of the faculty. And three, that uh, that diversity statements are really imposing something like a political litmus test or a loyalty oath akin to those of the Cold War era. So I wrote the article I did because all three of these are distinctly legal claims. And yet most of these charges have been made in faculty meetings and blog posts and uh, op-eds, places where the complicated doctrine surrounding each of these three types of claims doesn't really get fully aired. Uh, and so that was my goal. My, my general approach in writing the article was that there is something to each of these three claims that we can learn something from each of these three claims, because after all, diversity statements could be uh, viewpoint discriminatory. They could be a violation of academic freedom. They could be akin to a political test. I just think they don't have to be. And so what my work has tried to show is what can we learn from each of these charges such that we could do this without violating the constitution or the academic freedom on which universities, uh, you know, core mission depends. Um, that's in uh, pretty marked contrast with the kinds of calls we've seen recently, including this week, uh, the American Enterprise Institute has asked, has put out a report calling for the uh, universities to prohibit DEI statements. Just this week, the Academic Freedom Alliance uh, put out a letter that got quite a bit of press urging universities to desist from using DEI statements or at least pause until there could be a thorough airing of uh, the issues surrounding them. Uh, I hope my article contributes to that thorough airing and that uh, sessions like this might as well. So as quickly as I can, let me go through the three charges in order to say something about what we might learn about them. So first is the idea that these are viewpoint discriminatory in violation of the First Amendment. And you might you often hear that 
universities, public universities cannot engage in viewpoint discrimination uh, when they're hiring or perhaps viewpoint, political viewpoint discrimination, it's sometimes said. Now, taken literally, that, of course, can't be true. I engage in viewpoint discrimination all the time when I tell my students they're wrong after I've cold called them, when I grade their exams. We have certain jobs at the university that surely uh, somebody's political viewpoints, the viewpoints taken in their work is relevant. The uh, Reproductive Rights Institute at Eugene School uh, surely is taking people's past work in that area into account, just like my asylum clinic is, my colleagues over there. Uh, my First Amendment teacher, Robert Post, said some years ago that he imagined a chemistry department uh, that was giving out fellowships based on people's views on abortion. And he said, we might think that this is just egregiously viewpoint discriminatory, but what it really is, is just the real problem here is that the, the form of evaluation used here is just irrelevant to the job at hand. And that's the real essence, I think, to the viewpoint, uh, constitutionally and otherwise, to the charge of viewpoint discrimination. It's importing irrelevant considerations into a job description. And to me, that's really transformative in how we think about this whole issue, because what it means is insofar as DEI statements are undifferentiated, or rather the evaluation of them is undifferentiated across different positions, across different disciplines, then we really do have some constitutional worries. But then that raises some questions. What is relevant to my job description, Eugene's job description, the job description of people in the chemistry department at our universities? And two, who's going to decide that? And on the first question, I think all too many critics have just assumed, they've just begged the question and assumed that contributions to diversity are irrelevant to my job as a scholar or a teacher or someone engaged in university service. And I need an argument for that. Uh, and not just I need an argument, but the relevant decision makers need an argument for that. And that goes to the second question, who are those decision makers? Who should be deciding what's internal rather than external to a given position within a given discipline? And the answer to that brings us to the question of academic freedom, because the answer to that has to be disciplinary experts within that field. That's the core meaning of academic freedom, that judgments about what constitutes academic, scholarly, pedagogical excellence within a field are to be made by one's peers, not by the board of trustees, not by the regents, not by the legislature, not by pundits, uh, not by George Will writing about this in the Washington Post and assuming that it's irrelevant to our job description. No, it has to be internally. So the academic freedom point uh, suggests to me that we would have a problem here if the rubrics used, the criteria for evaluation of DEI statements were being imposed from above by administrators as opposed to being generated uh, from uh, from below by disciplinary experts uh, within the field, the people who are serving on the committees uh, that are doing appointments, that are voting on people's uh, tenure and advancement. They have to be the ones determining what does count as a contribution to diversity, equity, and inclusion within my field. How can, what are the needs within my field in those areas and how can that best be advanced? In that way, if that's how it's done, DEI statements are very little different than the teaching statements we file, than the research statements we file, anything else we include as part of our application. 
I think that many of the criticisms we hear of people that just don't trust admissions committees uh, or sorry, appointments committees, tenure committees uh, to do the right thing, to treat these in a, a, a kind of genuine, non-pretextual way are really just making criticisms of academic freedom more broadly. Uh, I want to make sure that the criticisms that diversity statements are receiving aren't ones that would apply equally to our peer evaluation writ large. Um, of course, you can criticize peer evaluation writ large, but that's a much bigger and different conversation. So finally, uh, the issue of loyalty oaths. Uh, there the the cases the many cases that sprung up in the 50s and 60s about loyalty oaths uh i think found that the main problem with them the main constitutional problem was a sort of guilt by association the idea that people are being judged uh on their beliefs on their association with others who share those beliefs as opposed to being judged on what they've actually done and so instead of debating whether DEI statements are akin to a loyalty oath or not, I think the more productive thing to do is just make sure that they're not being used as loyalty oaths. And what that requires, uh, my view, is an insistence that when we evaluate uh, DEI statements, we are asking people to talk about and then judging them on their actions their plans uh, and their past actions that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in their teaching, in their mentorship, in their research, uh, in their university and uh, outside the university service. If you do that, I think there are a few advantages. Uh, one, it really lessens the uh, opportunity to game the system. There's a lot of worry that when you start imposing these kinds of requirements, especially in hiring, that people coming from well resource schools who are well prepared for the job market, have great mentorship, are just going to workshop these statements to death and be able to say, tell the committees exactly what they want to hear. If the committees want to hear something about your personal devotion to diversity, then that's absolutely true. If, on the other hand, committees like mine want to hear, well, what have you actually done to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in your field, uh, then it's much harder to game the system. Either you've done it or you haven't. Uh, secondly, um, secondly, and this is really important from a constitutional standpoint, by talking about actions rather than beliefs, it leaves open for space outside the diversity statement context for people to dissent. If I'm not asking you, do you think diversity is just the biggest mission of this university, but rather I'm just asking, how have, what have you done to carry out this mission of the university? You are perfectly free in your op-eds, in your faculty meetings, in, in shared governments uh, to say, I think the university is devoting too much time to its concern for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think we should focus more on something else. And here again, think about the analogy with teaching statements. So I have to turn in one of these every year where I report my successes as a teacher, where I give the scores that the students uh, have given me in their student teaching evaluations. Now, I might think that the University of California at Davis uh, forces us to teach too much. I might think that they emphasize teaching too much at the expense of our research. I might also think that the use of uh, student teaching evaluations is an egregious affront to academic freedom because it outsources academic judgments to non-disciplinary experts. My teaching statement is not the place where I make that argument. 
because my teaching statement doesn't require me to state any beliefs at all. My teaching statement just requires me to report what I've done, how I've promoted the university's mission in this area. I am utterly free in all those other contexts to speak out, write op-eds about how I think uh, the school should focus more on research. So I think the analogy does a lot of work here in helping us think through uh, what's appropriate and what really would be a kind of compelled political conformity. Uh, so the difference between my work ultimately and what I see more broadly uh, in the statements that are released, like the Academic Freedom Alliances, is where most of our critics are calling just for an end to diversity statements, uh, for us to cease and desist, as the, ASA, as the AFA told us this week. Um, I think the values that they're trying to serve, this idea that we're really trying to find ways to disrupt uh, historical patterns of exclusion within our, our respective fields, is important enough that I'd like to do the work to find ways to do these, the constitutional way, the way that doesn't violate academic freedom, rather than just throwing up our hands and saying that uh, uh, it's, it's a project that completely needs to be abandoned. So thanks so much for being here and considering all that. Eugene? Uh, thanks, Brian. Very interesting and very important. And I have to agree, this is, an, this is a difficult question because you know, universities do indeed hire people and promote people based on many things, including we know the content of their speech, right? Uh, whenever we are reading somebody's article, I would hope it's not a content neutral uh, uh, evaluation. Uh, occasionally I hear jokes that, uh, uh, that uh, appointments committees don't know how to read, but they know how to count. So the question is, do you have four publications or not? There are jokes, certainly at a good university, we do consider that. And I think Brian is absolutely right that you have to consider viewpoint. Uh, that yes, if somebody in an article uh, expresses some scientific view that we think is contra contradicted by very well-established evidence, like, well, he thinks the earth is 6,000 years old, well, at the very least, we would look askance at that. I mean, I think we ought to be prepared for the possibility that that he's right and the rest of the discipline is wrong. In fact, that's the way discipline has advanced in many cases in the past. Um, uh, but as they say, they all laughed at Columbus, but they also all laughed at Bozo the Clown. Uh, so uh, if, if you want to say that, you're going to have a much higher um, uh, uh, much higher burden uh, to, to establish this quite controversial viewpoint than a non-controversial one. So I think all those are, are important things to keep in mind, which is why I agree this is an interesting and difficult question, especially as a constitutional matter. Uh, there are also academic freedom principles that are uh, that uh, go beyond uh, constitutional protections. But I, I like in all of these situations to try to think about how we would think about things if the shoe were more or less on the other foot. So I try to come up with this hypothetical. As with all hypotheticals, it's hypothetical. Uh, but at the same time, I like to try to make them at least potentially plausible. Uh, so so uh, you, you folks be the judges of, of whether it is plausible and how you think it should come out. So one day we'll have another war, and a war that we're going to feel very strongly about, that we, in the sense of the majority, will feel very strongly about, or perhaps the majority in some state, maybe in California, but who knows, Nebraska. And you could imagine a university saying, this war is dragging on, 
A lot of people are sacrificing a lot, including their lives for, for this. Uh, we think the university should do things to help the war effort. And of course, historically, universities have done that. Uh, UC itself has various labs uh, that are associated with the military. So, but uh, we want to do a bit more. So for example, uh, when we're looking at this triad of teaching research or rather research teaching and service, one form of service historically has been uh, popularizing knowledge for the for the public, popularizing uh, scholarly knowledge for the public. Another has been uh, um, doing uh, 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 performing service on university committees. Well, one of them will be military service. So if you decide to take a year off to serve in the military or take weekends off to serve the National Guard, we're going to count that as service for you. Or alternatively, if we want to look at your past accomplishments in deciding whether to hire you, that you served in the military would count in your favor. And in fact, many government institutions, including, I suspect, some universities, uh, uh, although I would think very few for research purposes, for research appointment purposes, do have veterans preferences. Um, or may, may even say, look, you know, in our experience, uh, uh, we think we've kind of neglected uh, in, in our kind of peaceful existence and our in our cultural and geographical remove from the wars that we've been fighting, um, that the nation has been fighting, we've neglected military studies in some measure. So, for example, I've heard people say that military history, once the mainstay of history departments, has fallen sharply out of favor to the point where we're not studying military history enough. Uh, even though military history, by any account, regardless of your ideology with regards to military matters, has got to be a hugely important part of the study of history. Or let's say we think that veterans coming back to study face their own problems. Uh, uh, they uh, they may have uh, may have a, a physical or emotional uh, difficulty stemming from their service, or maybe even not problems. Maybe even. You know, they have particular knowledge, particular experience, particular maturity or kinds of maturity that we're not considering enough that maybe we should harness it more. So so we think it's particularly valuable if people who are doing teaching are specially thinking about teaching veterans. So we're going to say that you're encouraged to mention all these things in your no normal research, teaching and service um, uh, service statements for hiring, promotion and the I think, you know, you could argue whether it's a good idea or not. You could think that maybe it might be misused. But I do think there's nothing inherently unconstitutional or even extraordinarily dangerous about this. You could even imagine them saying we're going to have a separate statement you could optionally, if you want to, uh, include. And we will just consider it as a part of uh, research, teaching, or service, as the case may be, but we just want to flag it because we're afraid that people aren't really thinking in these terms and aren't really mentioning things that they've done. Now, I think that might also be, be viable. On the other hand, let's say they said everybody in the, on the faculty of the university must include a statement of what they have done to promote the war effort, what they have done to serve our soldiers or military members, I don't want to be accused of service discrimination, um, uh, uh, what they have done to, uh, to fight our nation's enemies and promote, promote uh, truth, justice, and democracy, which is what we're fighting for. 
what they have done uh, to, 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 to further to further the success of, uh, of, of, of our war efforts. Well, I think at that point, we might be a lot more troubled. And so part of it, we might say, well, this is actually specifically unconstitutional as written because maybe because there's some rubric uh, as there is, I think in some measure, at least some of the uh, DEI statements that you pointed out that says, well, if somebody has in writing this expresses negative views about the war effort, then naturally you should mark him down. Now, that would be pretty clear viewpoint discrimination. And as you point out, it would be viewpoint discrimination in situations that are quite far removed from uh, from any uh, from any possible dis, uh, kind of disciplinary justification, disciplinary in the sense of within the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the role of an academic discipline. Um, but also we might think that this is the university's way of finding ways of discriminating based on viewpoint. It is a way of signaling to people that they should at least pretend adherence to a particular viewpoint. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's a way of, of signaling to people that if they do outside, uh, outside these statements say things that are critical of the war, Maybe things won't go so well for them come promotion time, or especially come hiring time, because of course hiring is the is uh, uh, the the stage at which discrimination is most easily accomplished and hardest to to to, to identify. Um, so so I think we would be troubled by it, and I would be I think we should be equally troubled by these diversity statements. Uh, and again, maybe less so if it's just well, you know. We have a lot of, let's say, non-white or non-white slash Asian uh, students, and we. Some people think, and there may be reason to think that we need to think specially about how to teach them. So, if you have thought specially about it, please let us know because this is something that might be uh, might be uh, one factor in your favor. That might be permissible. I think when when you go a lot further than that, I think at the very least this raises serious problems of academic freedom, academic integrity, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, ideological tolerance uh, that we think universities should engage in, even if there's no absolute mandate of viewpoint neutrality uh, there. Um, so uh, so then the question is how do you how do you deal with that? So one possibility as a constitutional matter would be to say, well, you know, there are facial challenges and there is applied challenges. And if there is a rule that says you cannot be hired or it will even it will count against you that you hold this viewpoint, that may be, except with the viewpoint discrimination, may be justified for whatever reasons, uh, but that may be unconstitutional. Whereas if all they say is, please give us all this information. We're not gonna tell you what we're gonna do with this, but we'll tell you, we very much value diversity and we'd love to hear about your contributions to diversity and fighting structural racism and this and that. Wink, wink. Uh, but th they don't say the wink, wink. We just think there's a wink, wink. Well, that's not good enough. You need to prove that, that there is viewpoint discrimination. That's a, that's a possibility as a legal matter. Although one might say that as a policy matter, when people are writing statements calling on universities or maybe boards of regents or state legislatures to, to set up particular rules, maybe they ought to take a more prophylactic approach. The last thing I want to mention is what about the, the focusing on the 
level of the institution that's setting up this room, because I do think there's a lot that's appealing about what Brian is saying um, uh, in uh, distinguishing things that are set forth by a particular department, which presumably is uh, acting based on real knowledge of the discipline, let's say the military history, or excuse me, the history department saying, look, you know, We've looked at our classes and sure, there's a little bit of military here, a little bit of military there, but our experience of the discipline of history is that military history is really something that you need to have a separate, uh, a separate course on. And here are the reasons why, and you know, people have tried it. Without that, it just doesn't work as well. And there are all of these unexplored areas in modern military history. People aren't doing enough military history of maybe modern colonial wars or post-colonial wars or, or whatever else. Now, that's one thing. Whereas if the Board of Regents says or the Office of the President says, oh, yes, you know, we should have more military stuff in here like the history department should teach more military history, we might say, you know, what do they know about uh, what, what's effective history teaching? And that may make us think that their motivation is ideological discrimination rather than a sincere attempt to go through, um, uh, to, 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 to uh, apply kind of disciplinary norms. At the same time, you know, we can't ignore the fact that Many disciplines are overwhelmingly ideologically skewed for a variety of reasons, some of which may be, may be perfectly permissible. Some people theorize, well, you know, maybe Republicans or conservatives aren't as good at something because their ideology blinds them to certain things, whereas liberals and progressives, their ideology is better and more apt and more consistent with the norms of the discipline. It actually opens their eyes to certain things. You know, I don't think so, but it's not, it's not a logically Im impossible situation. Or you might say, you know, in certain certain disciplines, uh, people are more drawn to it if they have particular kinds of ideologies. Uh, or you may even say more broadly that people who are more conservative minded are more likely to be drawn to the business world, whereas people who are on the left are more likely to be alienated from the business world. So as a result, we get that kind of ideal ideological skill. Or of course, human nature being what it is, you might say that if a department is two-thirds left and one-third right, then hiring decisions will predictably be mostly on the left because if it takes a majority, the majorities will routinely come up that way. Even if everybody's totally sincere and trying to come up with the best people, naturally, who's the best person in the world who thinks like me, right? That's human nature. Um, uh, so then it'll become three quarters, one quarters, and eventually 90-10 or 98-2, which I've seen some, some stories, I, don't, I haven't checked the data myself, suggesting that's true to certain things as well. So then one should wonder, to what extent should we say, well, yes, these departments all say that having a particular set of attitudes and predispositions or even actions with regard to fighting structural racism and such is a necessary feature of law, of nursing, of medicine, of mathematics, of physics, of all of these things, because we can come up with some connection. You know, everybody can come up with some connection. All things are connected in some way. Um, uh, so one might, one might say that maybe this is the ideological, university ideological monoculture talking, uh, at least as much as, as kind of genuine deference worthy um, uh, 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 judgments about disciplinary merit and excellence. Uh, and that maybe there ought to be more judicial second guessing of that than just judicial second guessing of, uh, of other seemingly less ideological criteria such as you need to publish several articles or this 
PhD thesis is unsound because it fails to consider this, this, and this. So those are the concerns that I have. And uh, uh, I just, uh, another way of putting it is, you know, I just want to know what the rules are, right? Because there are, there is an ideological monoculture uh, uh, in universities, as best we can tell, in many universities. There isn't, thankfully, in legislatures throughout the country. And it's predictable that there wouldn't be because the nature of the political process means if some party gets gets uh, a, a super, super, super majority, then what will happen is they'll get pretty extreme. Another political entrepreneur, perhaps from the other party, will move that party more to the center. Things will even out. So that's why it's unsurprising that America uh, has been 50-50-ish and sometimes swinging 60-40 either way. Uh, so maybe, you know, if these, if we know what the rules are, then maybe conservative legislatures or university presidents and regents appointed by conservative legislatures will know what kind of institutional shaping they could impose. Uh, that that, that uh, California, which is at this point does seem to be political monoculture on all levels, at least for now, uh, could set up, whether through the legislature or through the regents or through uh, university presidents or through departments, could set up uh, uh, this, uh, this preference for people who have particular views or approaches to diversity, whereas Nebraska could set up things, uh, uh, a, a structure for preferences for people who have particular uh, approaches to military matters or foreign policy matters or economic policy matters or such. So I, I just like to know what the rules are. Uh, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people uh, people uh, uh, who have the same view. I do, I shouldn't say just like, I do like to know what the rules are. My, my presumption is it's probably better for whether legislatures or presidents or departments not to uh, require everybody to talk about how they're furthering the war effort or how they're furthering diversity. So I think on balance, probably, despite the excellent points that Brian makes, even at the department level, that's something I would be pretty skeptical about. But if I'm wrong on that, and it is permissible, and I'd like to know how it would be permissible for both sides. Um, if it's okay with you, uh, Ryan and FedSoc, uh, let me just say a couple of things in response to Eugene before I, I know we would love to get to your questions, uh, people in the audience. But so the last bit that you were talking about, Eugene, I think is a good example of the type of criticism that I see as fully applicable to peer review and academic freedom writ large. Uh, so the monoculture point uh, is a a genuine concern and a deep concern about a kind of disciplinary capture, which when it happens uh, is a potentially fatal defect to the entire system of academic freedom. Uh, if there is that kind of capture within a department or a, uh, or worse, a discipline, uh, that's, that, that's when the system breaks down. And I don't think that's specific, anything specific to DEI statements. Um, moving backward, it's it's a great example. Uh, the the veterans preference slash uh, what have you done to promote the war effort uh, requirement? Um, so let me let me just offer two kinds of two uh, two spectra. Uh, so one would be one of the kind of thickness of the commitment that you're being uh, that's being imposed upon you or that's being sought. So. Uh, you know, promoting the war effort is a different level than, say, uh, 
a university that wanted public facing intellectuals, wants people that are engaged, uh, wants people that are addressing the main problems of our time, where, of course, in World War Three, the main problem of our time is very likely uh, going to be seen as the war effort. So what are you doing? Uh, but, you know, of course, other people might be taking different routes to that. Some might be working on the environment or what have you. That would be a, a thinner conception of what's required uh, as opposed to the more thick conception where we say, you know, what's, what are you doing for the war? What are you doing to fight fascism or, or what have you? Um, now, I see, I tend to see diversity statements when done well as being or having the potential to be on the thinner side than I think most of the critics see it. So see it as not uh, specifically about structural racism, for example, or you know what have you done to, uh, to be an anti-racist? Although, of course, there are places uh, that have, uh, you know, where that has been the goal. Uh, you know, we're going to schools that say we are go going to become an anti-racist law school. And so, you know, that's a much thicker conception of, uh, of, of what's being sought there. Um, I certainly think our DEI requirement at the University of California is not that. Uh, I've probably read a hundred of these statements in the last two weeks as chair of the appointments committee, and they're all over the place uh, in terms of what people have done um, in, their, in their teaching, in their research, in mentorship, uh, in their service, um, based on you know, what their background is, based on what their skills are, based on whether they're in a field where there's a kind of natural relationship to these topics or not. Uh, and so that's the other distinction that I, the other spectrum that I just want to throw out is the spectrum of internal to external to the discipline or job in question. And, you know, that's not an odd, that's not a binary. It's definitely a spectrum. So when we ask about, uh, in Eugene's thing about promoting the war effort, um, how does that apply? You know, will that be internal um, or, you know, often people talk about patriotism statements. Will that be internal to the chemistry department uh, or the, you know, the, some, some other department in the same way that promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, including in your field, is? Uh, and I, I think there's a difference there. I think there's a variety of ways in which uh, people can do different things in different fields in which the needs are different in different fields. Um, so in some fields, there's such underrepresentation, uh, whether based on gender, uh, on national origin, based on ethnicity or race, uh, that a kind of targeted mentorship um, a, a sort of upending of the way things have been done might be quite necessary just to not have an all male philosophy department. Um, and my, my PhD is in philosophy. So that's one place where, uh, efforts are needed, but another in philosophy, I was a philosopher of art and there many of the efforts have been in terms of diversifying syllabus, uh, syllabi, just diversifying the types of artworks that we look at, uh, when we're teaching that we use as examples, people's DEI statements in philosophy of art are, uh, you know, largely talking about that. Have, have you continued to use the same examples that you were taught in grad school, uh, Duchamp and Beethoven, or have you come up with new things, uh, that are reaching students that come from different backgrounds and that raise a different set of philosophical issues. And so there's a breadth of ways in which this, these issues could be addressed. 
addressed and promoted and where you could get credit for your DEI efforts, uh, that's broader than what I see in the hypothetical that, uh, that you gave us, Eugene. Great, thanks, thanks very much. So I think we have time for questions. Uh, and yeah, so so Ryan, you, you you tell me how you want to run it. I take it you you you're just going to go through the chat and the questions and pose some suitable ones for us. Yep, certainly. And actually, I want to start with a question of my own uh, for for Brian. I want I was wondering about uh, land acknowledgement statements of indigenous land at university. It's it's, it's a tangential issue, one that kind of has popped up at the same time as uh, diversity statements. Can you apply some of your analysis? to uh, land acknowledgements at the university level and if uh, if the same reasoning applies? Oh, sure. So there's, uh, there's clearly a difference between statements being made by the university versus statements that uh, they are requiring uh, people within the university to make. Uh, and so there are instances where I might uh, be required to um, include certain resources on my syllabus, uh, or at least strongly, strongly urged uh, regarding um, harassment reporting or disability accommodations um, as part of our way of, of complying with our Title IX or ADA obligations. Uh, but there are other types of things where if the university uh, wanted me to endorse its mission on my syllabus, there would be some serious problems there uh, because you know, crucial to my third point about uh, about loyalty oaths is the idea that there's always space outside, that there's space somewhere. I think this is something that runs through several areas of First Amendment case law, uh, that there is, whether it's government funding, whether it's public employment, uh, that there is an area in which you are free to dissent to the mission of the university, even if you can be required as part of the program as a government employee to advance the university's mission. Uh, so the, the land uh, acknowledgements are potentially problematic in that way. So, uh, so I appreciate Brian's po uh, point, and I, I agree that land acknowledgements in some situations, mandated ones, would be unconstitutional. Uh, that uh, if, he, if the professor is required in his own voice to say on his syllabus, I want to acknowledge that this is the ancestral land of uh, the American Indian tribe X, uh, that that would be a speech compulsion. Um, it's true that for many government employees, that would be a permissible speech compulsion because you're required to say all sorts of things as part of your job. But given uh, the, the suggestion in Garcetti v. Ceballos, the Supreme Court's precedent on that speech as part of the job issue, um, that uh, uh, the rule would be different for for universities, uh, for university professors. And given the cases uh, in the fourth, uh, I want to say ninth and sixth, and maybe fifth, although it's a closer call there, uh, uh, that that take that suggestion and run with it and say that that uh, uh, the First Amendment does presumptively protect university uh, professor speech. I think it would protect them from having having to say that, especially in a situation where it's clear that it has nothing to do with con law two or First Amendment law or chemistry or whatever else. Uh, so uh, if the university wants to just say this as like, just say, for example, attached to your syllabus, yeah, here's a statement. The regents say the following, uh, uh, then 
then I think that would be constitutionally permissible. And maybe not even a violation of academic freedom as such, but I do think it should violate norms of academic honesty and integrity, uh, which uh, one of the most important of the norms is if in class an, an argument comes up, then you need to be, at, at the very least, the university needs to allow exploration of counterarguments. Uh, that uh, uh, the university isn't supposed to be out there setting forth dogma that is to be accepted unchallenged. You know, some other employers might be allowed to do that for their for their employees, and maybe as again as a First Amendment matter, maybe it's even maybe even a university would be allowed to do that. But that's not how we understand uh, our rules of academic freedom. So it seems to me that if the university doesn't does include that, then a faculty mem ma a member can't be disciplined or can't even really be faulted on grounds that he's bringing ideology into the classroom or adding, as one professor, I think there's now a lawsuit about this in Washington State, one professor at the University of Washington, I believe, did that. He, he had a little kind of response saying, I think this is all this, all this land acknowledgement stuff is nonsense. Uh, so if he just did that in his, I think he's a computer science professor in his computer science class, at the start of the class, say, oh, by the way, let me tell you why I'm against land acknowledgements. I think we could fault him for bringing ideology into a subject in a way that's unrelated to it. That would be a very legitimate basis, again, for faulting him, maybe not for disciplining him, or maybe for disciplining him. But once the university brings this ideology into the classroom, even in a way that it's just the university statement and not the faculty member's own statement, then it seems to me that the faculty member isn't doing anything wrong by uh, uh, by expressing the contrary view. And in fact, maybe doing some good by encouraging students to think critically about these kinds of statements, even from the administration, maybe especially from the administration. Uh, the, so. the university could put the land acknowledgement uh, on the wall of every classroom. Right. Uh, and and as Eugene said, a professor could then make a statement where she says, right. here's what I've got a problem with this, just like right. I might criticize the art in my classroom. Uh, I might criticize the fact that all the pictures, the portraits, this certainly isn't true at Davis, but it, uh, that all the portraits in a particular classroom are old white men or something, you know, but that was the university statement in who they wanted to honor. Uh, uh, in both of these cases. Cool. And moving on to some audience questions now. Um, first one, Professor uh, Socek says loyalty oaths uh, cases were about guilt of, by association and not about what people had actually done or planned to do. But wouldn't courts still have found a problem uh, or even worse problem if universities had required professors to discuss what they had done or planned to demonstrate to do for their loyalty to the United States? Oh, well, I mean, the idea was that if somebody was trying to actually overthrow the, the United States, that that was something universities and other uh, state actors could take account of. But the fact that you were in the same organization as somebody who wanted to overthrow the United States uh, was not enough to uh, was not enough to um, you know, get you fired. And I think the analogy here is. If all we care, if all we're asking is, hey, what's your view on diversity? And somebody says, gosh, I just think how to be anti-racist is the best book I've ever read, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You're getting credit for 
something somebody else has done, not for anything that you've done. Uh, it's the it's the flip side of the guilt by association. Here you're getting credit by association. And we shouldn't care uh, whether somebody thinks that's a good book or a bad book. We should care what somebody has done to advance the university's uh, mission as currently expressed. So, Brian, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to be said uh, for, 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 for what you're saying, that if you do want people who are acting to do X, like going out there and fighting in the war or going out there and actually, let's say, mentoring, mentoring uh, uh, black and Hispanic uh, high school students. Uh, that's also speech. But the but but the action, it's, it's not just they're expressing views about that, but they're actually doing it. That, that may be a very sensible thing, but I don't think the line is between guilt by association and other things, because let because uh, uh, let's say he doesn't just say, oh, I love Ibram Kendi's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Let's say he actually says, I firmly believe X, Y and Z, not not in some group. I just believe X, Y and Z. If you get credit for, for that belief, it's not credit by association. It's credit. First of all, so it's credit for your belief. Now, it could be Sorry. credit for bullshitting, right? One of the concerns may be that it's that uh, it, it's uh, uh, you're getting credit for just pretending, and that that may be actually both unfair to people who really have walked the walk, but also uh, corrupting of the academic process where we're encouraging people to be insincere. Uh, but on top of that, you're getting credit for adhering to a particular viewpoint. So I think that's the objection. So I think if the loyalty oaths, let's set aside the loyalty oath cases for all their errors, at least focused on specifically, there's something special about violent overthrow of the government. Uh, so let's set that aside. Let's say there was a statement saying sure, not just sure, sure. but uh, Eugene, sorry, not, uh, sorry to cut you off. Uh, but when in, in my focus on the loyalty oaths, I was uh, trying to say what that those cases do distinct from the viewpoint discrimination cases that I'd already talked about. Got it. Fair enough. So, uh, so I completely agree that uh, imposing the viewpoint is itself a problem. Uh, and then the loyalty oath, I think, adds an additional type of problem and concern. Uh, both, the, you know, the viewpoint that gets us to the job relevance issue that we discussed earlier. Uh, the additional thing, I think, with the uh, viewpoint is uh, this idea of uh, of being judged based on your beliefs rather than your actions, based on your associations with others, uh, your, your sort of membership as opposed to what you've actually done. And cutting across both is an idea that we would be far better off if we asked people about actions and plans as opposed to uh, as opposed to beliefs. Um, I've just uh, I've, I've had a sense of frustration as I've read the hundred diversity statements when people t when I read people, I think telling telling me what I think they want me what they think I want to hear, you know, that they think diversity is just the the most important part of their job or something. I don't care what they think about that. I really don't. I, I care. I care what they've done. So, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. And, and, and lastly, I think that's now the official position uh, jointly of the UC system wide faculty Senate and uh, the relevant administrators who work on these issues, you know, as of recommendations from just a couple months ago. Well, Brian, I, I, I'm glad that that's what you care and what you don't care about. I think that, that that's 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 right. The right, right approach. I wonder how many of our colleagues do care about that. How many of our colleagues do want to use this as a screening mechanism to hire more people 
either as a means of bypassing the restrictions imposed by Prop 209, that this is just basically a way of trying to get more black and Hispanic faculty, uh, or um, uh, uh, or that they just want to hire more people who are there, who are ideologically like-minded, either because they just think that those are better people, better human beings, because after all, that's human nature again to think that but based on ideology, or because there are people who are going to then end up voting in faculty committees and hiring decisions and such uh, on a wide range of other issues in ways that the uh, that the screeners uh, want. And that even if the, some of that is people just pretending, they may figure that we want people who are willing to pretend because maybe they're going to continue willing to pretend uh, in those committees as well. I wonder if how, right, but how many of our colleagues think that. Well, but I wonder about how many of our colleagues do that with research statements. I mean, that your monoculture point goes equally oh. to that. I wonder how often people use the uh, dinner at a faculty callback uh, to suss out whether somebody is collegial in a way that has historically been tied to weeding out uh, people of certain, of any number of backgrounds uh, and identities. So of course, you know, these are real problems. And so then what's the answer? You stop having people submit research? No, of course not. Uh, similarly- Maybe you have things that are a little less targeted, a little less convenient to use as ways uh, for that. So it's one thing to have- well, It's hard for me to think of anything that's more convenient for weeding out ideology than a research statement. Uh, but in terms of you know, the recommendations made system-wide you know, that, that you're aware of here at UC, throughout the UC system, I mean, insofar as those are distributed and taken to heart such that what's being requested in the actual job announcements uh, is a statement of what you have done as opposed to your beliefs, insofar as that's clarified, in the way that the recommendations recommend, uh, then I think we sidestep those issues. I mean, the alternative is, of course, to do away with it entirely. And as I said, I think it's serving an important enough goal uh, that I'm willing to work on getting people to do it right rather than you know, trying to ban it. Right. And there are a lot of questions and not a lot of minutes left. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another question is, if an academic believes entirely in the equality of opportunity rather than an equality of outcome and believes that promoting intellectual diversity rather than racial, ethnic, sexual, et cetera, diversity is important, how can an aspirant to a uh, faculty position check the boxes, the DEI boxes, without, without uh, violating their conscience? Yeah, good. So... Uh... Again, nobody's if no assuming that nobody's asking you what you believe. And so if the question is interpreted in along the lines of, say, how has uh, how has a diverse variety of students thrived under your watch? Uh, and you have a and you have a story to tell about that, uh, then that strikes me as a uh, a contribution to diversity. Um, you know, some of the things that I've seen repeatedly in the statements that I've read in the last couple of weeks and that I have in my own uh, is efforts to make our own casebooks, to use open source casebooks to uh, lessen the costs imposed on our students. Um, I use my own equal protection and art law materials now um, because that has a diversifying effect uh, of making law school a more accessible place. Um, I don't think that runs against 
the conscience of somebody who believes in equality of opportunity. I would think somebody who believes in equal opportunity would want to do make efforts like that. So uh, again, it depends on how thick or how thin we see the content of what's being requested here. You know, if the idea is you have to endorse the diversity rationale of the Backey, of Justice Powell's decision in Backey, that's a thick conception of diversity. That's clearly not what we're imposing, uh, you know, here, or I assume anywhere, or else we would be weeding out all of my and Eugene's critical race colleagues who, you know, have made careers out of destroying the diversity rationale and backy, you know, that's, that's just not what we're looking for. Uh, and so that I, I would look for ways in which somebody that, uh, believe strongly in equality of opportunity has uh, promoted opportunities. Kind of combining a few questions here um, to get the most bang for our buck. Essentially, how can we ensure that these diversity statements or these the reviews of these diversity statements won't be used by universities to, to screen out uh, conservative or other people whose political beliefs are not uh, in line with the university. So insofar as beliefs are being screened, then it's being done wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, insofar as there's some kind of correlation between somebody's political ideology and their success at promoting uh, the success of a diverse array of students uh, or of speaking to the concerns of a diverse state like California, since we are, after all, uh, a public university, then that's that's uh, strikes me as not the university's concern any more than it was if any of Eugene's earlier hypos about, you know, I, we both think this is unlikely, but if there were a case that Republicans are bad at, uh, you know, some field, well, that would be too bad for Republicans in that field. Uh, so to hear this is part of the mission. Now, if that is an ideological screening, then that's inappropriate. Uh, if there is some correlation that uh, people from uh, underrepresented backgrounds tend to be um, better at uh, a kind of mentorship that uh, helps diversify their profession, well, that seems um, like people that have a set of skills that we need to be relying on more. Any thoughts, Eugene? No, I'm happy, happy to go to the next question. Perfect. So uh, to close this out, I think this will probably be our last question. So what does it mean for a, a diversity statement to be done well? And can that be measured objectively? I mean, so my guiding star in all of this is ask whatever question uh, you have about diversity statements, about teaching statements or research statements. Uh, can it be done objectively? I don't fully even know what that means in those other contexts. Does that mean I think it's totally relativist and there is no, no, but I think there is, I mean, I think the same way that we uh, measure merit in all other areas of our jobs as academics, 
the notion of academic freedom as it's come down to us over the last century is that uh, that's done by entrusting these decisions to the good faith efforts of experts within the discipline, that they're the ones who are going to jointly uh, define what counts as an advance in their field, uh, as a contribution to their field. That's all we can expect of uh, the evaluation of diversity statements as well. You know, I, I think there's a lot to what Brian says that you can't, you, there's no, never any assurance that any rules are going to be implemented in a, in a fair way. That's not a reason to have no rules, but it might be a reason to be skeptical about some. And I think one of the things is that at least as they have been, as they have been articulated, at least in many situations, maybe not the optimal ones that Brian describes, but uh, uh, um, as they've been articulated in uh, some of the things that even he mentions that he says maybe going too far, uh, they have uh, at least two properties. One is they are particularly well suited, particularly well suited to uh, viewpoint discrimination. That with a research statement, look, if I'm, uh, uh, it's true that if I do a uh, research statement on uh, uh, on First Amendment law, people certainly could say, oh, I don't like this ideology, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to exclude him, although inevitable if we are, consider people's research, it has to be done. But at least there would be a pretty broad zone of people where, you know, you don't expect there to be a lot of ideological objections, at least of that sort. So if somebody is, for example, uh, in a different department uh, is uh, my research statement is to study these kinds of mathematical formulae. Well, then at least probably it's a little less likely that it will be used at least for the same kind of ideological discrimination. Maybe there's some internal war for the soul of mathematics, just, just purely intradisciplinary war. Some people are more algebraicists, some geometricists. I'm sure that's not right, but you can imagine something like that you, with, with terms that, uh, that we don't even understand. Uh, maybe that they would trigger that, but at least it would be less suitable to kind of a co co comprehensive ideological uh, um, uh, uh, ideological discrimination, these things I think are unusually well suited for it. They're also unusually well suited, seems to me, to send a message that this is what we expect at the university. This is what you're at least going to have some explaining to do if you do express outside views on the subject, because next time somebody evaluates them, they're going to do it through the lens of, well, you know, but I read his op-ed and now I'm going to look at this a lot more skeptically. Uh, maybe again, maybe that's not enough to make a constitutional violation. Maybe the value of this is, of these statements is sufficient to, uh, to justify them. Um, despite this risk as a matter of academic freedom and as a matter of proper institution building, uh, I remain skeptical about them. Well, we've come up to the end of our time, but I would like to thank both, both of our experts here today for their valuable time and expertise. And I would like to thank our audience for joining us and participating, especially with those great questions. I'm sorry we weren't able to get to all of them. And I would well, especially, like to, thank, I would sorry, especially like to thank Brian for coming in and visiting with us. Uh, uh, as the audience knows, you know, the way we like to do things at the Federalist Society is make sure that we have people on both sides of, uh, of, of the subject. And, and best of all, if there are some of them are people outside who can bring their perspective to us. So we don't become uh, a, a kind of a, a, an echo chamber. So that's why I particularly appreciate it when colleagues from across the aisle in some measure uh, are, uh, are uh, come, come and join us. So many thanks, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
Uh, we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, please keep an eye on your, our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other programming. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.